0: So why don't you take it away? All
1: right. So at what age can kids understand the consistent expectations we want for our family?
0: So I think this question stems from uh, the talk we gave a couple weeks ago about, about having high expectations for your kids. And uh, something that something we might not have mentioned. Uh, let, let me back up. Let me say this. We, we have three children. Madeline will be 21 in February. Emma is 18. And Carter is 16. And so we, we have kind of a foot in both worlds. Two girls are in college. Carter just got his driver's license, and he's got a job, and he's gone. So I describe it as we have one foot in the house and one foot in the grave. Right. We're kind of, like, teetering, <laughs> like all the kids are almost gone. But, um, but we remember having toddlers and having kids. So, so I know every parent in here, when your child was first born, you um, – you were gauging them up against other kids. And when your kids spoke at eight months old and said, Dada and Mama and "get me a drink before I started screaming in Walmart, when they said that before the neighbor kids said that, you instantly went, we knew they were smarter. We knew it. We knew those neighbor kids were dumber than our kids. We knew that. And when they started walking a little earlier, you were like, oh, our kids are way smarter than all those kids. Every parent does it. Every parent's like, my little Einstein is going to grow up and rule the world with a little bit of evil laugh. <laughs> Here's the reality. They're probably normal kids. Probably normal kids. What you do from that point on will dictate whether they excel or not. And so when we talked about high expectations... We set high expectations for our kids, but there's two things I wanted to make sure that you understand that have to do with this question. They were age-appropriate, and they were capacity-appropriate expectations. We didn't expect a 4-year-old to talk like a 20-year-old. We wanted them to talk like a 4-year-old. Amen? Now, when they were 20, we wanted them to talk like a 20-year-old. Not like a 4-year-old. Amen? So age-appropriate expectations and capacity-appropriate expectations. Should I even talk about sports?
1: You can. I probably Just should. a little bit. You're probably good. All right. How
0: many of you have kids in sports right now? Raise your hand. Kids in sports right now. All right. Parents, it is not your job to vicariously live through your kids on the soccer field. Stop yelling at your children on the soccer field because this is why. What I realized was my... My oldest daughter was a very good soccer player, but she was never going to be the fastest player on the field. It didn't matter how many times I yelled, run! It didn't matter. And dads, when you say, kick the ball! The coach is praying to God, if there's a God in heaven, remove him from the field right now. So the issue is, is we had to learn to set expectations according to our kids' capacities. That doesn't mean they weren't high. So our, we, we set, it may seem unfair, but different expectations for you know, all three of our kids because yeah. their capacities were different. Their
1: giftings were different. Their talents were different.
0: So what I want to tell you is, it means, parents, you have to know your kids. Yeah. You have to lean in a little bit and... and, and Can I let you in on a little bit of a secret of travel sports? Is this. The coach is going to tell you at seven years old that your kid has the D1 prospect. He's lying. (laughs) They're lying to you. They're lying to you. Because .00000000001% of kids make it to Division I college sports and then pass that. It just doesn't happen. And so the idea that your kid that talked 30 seconds earlier than your neighbor's kid and walked 30 is all of a sudden an Einstein. And, and I'm like, they're going to be, we set the expectation above their capacity and it frustrates the kid. Mm-hmm. So look at your kid. I realized up front, my kids were not going to be the fastest kids on the field. So it would be an unrealistic expectation for me to make them have that goal. Nice. No, you have to be the fastest. No, you have to be the smartest. No, you, you have to be the best player. Here's what we said. You will never quit. Come on, somebody say amen. Amen. That has nothing to do with their capability. That has everything to do with their determination. So they will never quit. And they will always do their best. So if I'm a parent and I'm in tune with with the kid, I know when they put forth the effort.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Amen? Even if the effort is lower or even if the, the result of the effort is less than another kid. I'm not measuring them against your kids. Come on, that's going to free you up. Say amen. I don't care if your kids go to Harvard. Good for you. I don't care if your kids play Division I sports. Good for you. I'm not going to live through my kids' lives expecting them to be anyone else but who God made them to be. So I need to know my kids well enough to know, okay, either if they are the fastest, then expect that. But if they're not... Expect that they give their best. Set the expectation high of what they are capable of achieving, not what everyone else thinks they should achieve. Amen. What we said, what we said the other week: don't exacerbate your kids. The Bible is very clear on that. And what happens today in the travel sports culture, where every kid has to get on the travel team and every kid has to perform at a high level, every kid has to play in college is we set these expectations the kids could never meet. But with that, we didn't bubble wrap the kids either. I could get in trouble for this, but I'm going to say it. Let your kids have experiences that make you nervous. Can I get one Amen. Everybody's like, I fly a drone over my kid everywhere they go. Everywhere they go, I just fly it over. And when the teacher yells at them, I say. (laughs) So we allowed our kids to experience things that force their capacity to increase. Mm -hmm. So watch this. Carter was eight?
1: Seven. You mean, well, when he started on the... The large mower. Yeah. Yeah. Probably seven or eight.
0: So I started watching Carter, and he had these hand-eye coordination thing going on, and he was—he wanted to do everything I was doing, and and I'm into construction stuff and all kinds of things. And so he was about eight years old, and and we had one of those stick-steer lawnmowers, the zero-turn lawnmowers, and we got a decent amount of property, a piece of ground. And so I thought, why not? (laughs) So I set him on the lawnmower. I did not turn the mowing deck on. Right. Set him in the lawnmower, strapped him in, it was kind of funny because he pushed forward, hit a bump, and the thing was shut off because he, he didn't weigh enough to hold the seat down. <laughs> I'm pretty sure my my neighbors had 911, you know, just waiting. Look what they're doing to their kids.
1: So the kids used to fall asleep. I remember coming home and, and dad would be riding around the yard and hears Carter Like.
0: <laughs> sitting on his lap, yeah. yeah. So what would happen what happened is this. We allowed him to experience something that made us a little bit nervous. Well, it made her nervous? I was like, yeah. So, so after about three or four months, I realized, huh, he's getting pretty good at this. And if I turn the mowing deck on, I'll never have to mow grass again. Do you know what I did? Turn the mowing deck on. So he's been mowing grass since he was eight years old. He's 16 now. Now, let me tell you something. That'll backfire because now he's like, dude, do I have to still my grass? Like just because you started early doesn't mean you need, don't need to finish. Right. Let's finish this out. Fifteen years old, he was running heavy equipment here at the church. So the, so the thing is this. Set high expectations, but then allow your kids to experience things uh, that, that, will, that will help them fulfill those expectations. So let me say this about Expectations. Set expectations that you already know your kids are going to fail at.
1: Mm-hmm. It's something that we... They're not going to say amen about no, that one they're either. they're not. They're not. No. I no, mean, don't, don't set them up for failure. But something we had talked about and decided is that we wanted our kids to fail while they were still in our house. Because you see so many kids that things just continually go right for them. And then they get out into the real world. They're 18, they're 20, whatever. If something goes wrong. Something, like... The boss, boss yells, yells at them or whatever, and then all of a sudden they don't know how to handle that. They don't know how to handle criticism, constructive criticism. They don't disappointment. So we wanted. I actually kind of specifically remember going, "Lord, please let her fail this." Um, and we were when she did with something. We were like, "Yes," because we wanted that disappointment to happen. While we could still be there to help her figure out what did you do wrong, you you, you, you're not going to be perfect at everything.
0: So Everything's
1: not going to always turn out right.
0: I think we just said, set high expectations and cheer when your kids fail. Yeah, we did. <laughs> okay.
1: Yeah, we did. That's not really what we meant. Look,
0: look the failure is not sin. I know some of you perfectionists out there think it is, but failure is not sin. Failure is that you had an expectation of the way things would turn out, you tried, and then it didn't turn out that way. Yeah. But what you learn from failure is, hey, there may be another way to do this better, or there may be another way to do this better. So what we learned early on is let our kids screw it up. Give them the high expectation. Let them go. And then when they mess it up, give them grace to come back around yeah. and try it again. Yeah. If you wait... And you do everything for them, and you, you, you set low expectations so they're always the winner. If you allow them to bring the participation trophy home and then you cheer for it, we always told our kids that sec- first place is, or second place is the first loser. You just remember that. You said that. Uh, I said that. <laughs> so it's all right. So let's come back at this again and try it a different way. The, the principle is we're not going to quit because it didn't work the first time. We're going to keep going at it because a lot of life is, the reality of life is the 30th time it works or the 50th time it works. And you can't give up in the middle of that. Right. And so, so we set high expectations that were age appropriate and capability appropriate. And parents, that means you can't be away from your kids 23 hours a day and understand what that is. Right. You have to be engaged in their life to the point where you know what they're capable of and then set the bar. And the, keep it consistent. It's gonna, it's gonna
1: move up and down a little bit, but it's the consistent yeah. expectation. Not that today I expect you to do this and tomorrow this is okay, well then the next day I put it up here and then we're back to here. Consistency with that a little bit of mobility so that it can meet their capability.
0: Yeah. So the other thing we, we say is um, it, it was never, never make excuses, but never be unrealistic. So we're not going to make excuses for our kids, but then we're not going to be unrealistic either. I'm not going to vicariously try to live through my kid on a sports field and scream at them for an hour. I'm not going to be unrealistic, but I am going to, I'm not going to make excuses for them not giving their best effort. Right. Amen. And so, and so when we set expectations, they're age appropriate and they're capability appropriate. And you have to lean into your kids to know that. And so that kind of is a good segue into the next one.
1: So um, we were asked the question about some of the personality tests that we talked about. So one of them actually is a book. It's called The Five Love Languages. They have it for kids and just called The Five Love Languages. It's more for relationships. Um, So the five love languages are physical touch, words of affirmation, acts of service, quality time, and gifts. So everybody has a little bit of each one of those, but what you tend to find is that you lean more towards one or two of those. And that's typically how you, you receive love. It's also a lot of times the way you try to give love, even though that may not be what the other person is needs. Um, when your kids are little, this is kind of hard. I mean, like I said, everybody needs a little bit of all of them. When they're little, it's it's difficult to figure out what that is. But as they get older, you're going to see probably a little bit more dominance or in one or two of those. It's good for relationships, for couples as well, and even friendships. You've, I've, I've got a friend in Berkeley Springs that almost when I met her, I was like, she is gifts. Because she's always saying, hey, I was out and I found this. And she's bringing this and this. And she's always bringing little trinkets of things that she remembered what you liked. And so,
0: yeah. So we found out our kids are just, are, all three of them are different. And as they get older, we, we, we didn't read that book until we were about married about six years, I think that's when I read the book. And then I went, Oh, that's why it's not working. Okay. Um, so then we started realizing, Oh wait, our kids are exhibiting these same, these same characteristics. And so it really, I'm not, I'm not a physical touch guy in the sense that I want hugs all the time or I'm good with a fist bump. I don't need you to hug me. It's fine. Really? It's fine. What I found out though is that our Madeline is just like me. Madeline's like, "Don't touch me, you're weird." <laughs> Emma, our middle child, found out that I didn't that I, that wasn't really me, and from Earth just started hanging on me. And now that she knows, does it on purpose. Like she's just like, "Oh, Dad," she just. Wah. And I, I look at her I'm like, "What do you want?" i like, what are you doing? Here's what we had to do. I had to realize, even though it's not my knee-jerk reaction, that she needed that. And so I needed to be able to hug her. I needed to be able to just walk up and put my arm around her in different circumstances. If she was upset, I needed to be able to hug her. So it may not be your kids, ironically, may not be wired exactly like you. They may look like you. They may talk like you. But they may not think exactly like you think. And so as a parent, it's our job to feed them love the way they understand it, not the way you get it. And so the best thing you could do for a 16-year-old daughter who, who is, who's one of her love languages, is um, physical touch, is hug her. Mm-hmm. Because guess what, dads? If they don't find love in a good environment, hug her sit down with her on the couch and put your arm around her yeah. and tell her how special she is. And, and, and we started seeing this in our son. He does not leave his grandparents' house until he gives them hugs. Mm-hmm. That's weird for me. <laughs> I'm like, God, what'd you do? You gave me two kids with physical touch as, a, as, as love language and one of them's a boy?
1: <laughs>
0: like, I just want to fist bump. Hey, dude, you're good, doing a good job. Do something else now. Do
1: you notice all the words of affirmation that are coming through when he says he does that? And he says,
0: <laughs> "That's true."
1: Mister, <laughs> words of affirmation right here.
0: So, lean into your kids enough. Um, so, so we figured out our kids love languages. We think, um, and then and then we had. They also, you know, we ran our staff there's Enneagram thing. I've taken the Strengths Finder. I think you took the Strengths yeah. Finder. There's multiple personality tests. Not not one of them has the corner on the whole market, but but. Here's what I would say as a parent. Know yourself. Yeah. Know yourself. Know your own hang-ups. Know your own tendencies. Know your own re- knee-jerk reactions to things. And it will help you deal with your kids. It will help you understand your kids. If, you, if you're emotionally intelligent enough to know how you are, then it makes room for you to know how your kids are. And so we, we started running our kids through these things. Right.
1: What I was going to say is just remember that um, our big one lately has been the Enneagram. So amongst the staff that's taken, it's kind of funny. It's like, well, you're a one, and you're a an eight, and you're a six, and you're a two. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't put you in a box. It's, it's just that, hey, these are what your tendencies are. This is kind of what your personality leans towards. So, you know, it is not that one thing that says this is who you are, and you're never going to change, or you're never going to fear anything else, too. So be careful not to get yourself stuck in that.
0: Yeah, and don't label your kids like, well, you're a one. Yeah. You're going to critique everybody, and it's so annoying to us. Don't do things like that. It, it's, a, it's a useful way to understand how your kid thinks about something. Mm-hmm. Like, Madeline's a seven, so we know every, she's going to be late, and it's going to be a party. Mm-hmm. So we're not, we're not going to criticize her every day for that. We're going to say, hey, you know what? You have a tendency to be late. Let's get up earlier. Yeah. The expectation doesn't lower. Come on. The expectation doesn't lower because our personality is different. It just means we have to, okay, now that you know this about yourself, now we have to adjust. Right. So then we come with grace and support and say, hey, let's get up a little earlier. It's fine. Set let's. 12 alarms instead of 10. <laughs> and, then, and then with our, some of our other kids that, you know, they're a one on the Enneagram and so they want to point everything out that's wrong. I'm, I'm appreciative of that, but your, your job as a parent is to shape it a little bit. Hey, here's how you can be, this is how you can really use your personality to help people and not put them off. And so you have to know yourself well and then lean into your kid and know your kid well enough to take what God put in them already and then, and then shape it in a way that's beneficial when they become an adult. Never make, it, well, that's just the way they are. Never make excuses. Your job as a parent is to shape the child. Amen? To shape the child. not go, well, he's never going to accomplish anything. No. Shape them. Amen? Amen. That was all the kids. That was everything. So you know everything you need to know now.
1: (laughs) All right. So we're going to move on to a little bit of marriage. Um, So I'm going to... Put these two questions together again. Okay, so how would you encourage someone that has an unbelieving spouse, and how do you work through a relationship when you are more a more spiritually mature when you are more spiritually mature than your spouse?
0: Do you want to read the scriptures? I can. Yeah, First Corinthians.
1: Yeah, so First Corinthians seven verses twelve and thirteen. To to the rest, I say this. I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Go ahead. Okay. Um, So 1 Peter 3, verses 1 and 2. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, and then Matthew five sixteen says, "In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven."
0: So, give you a little contextual basis for what Paul's writing here. Paul is talking to the Corinthian church, who was a it was a pagan culture. Pagan worship was the standard. It wasn't it wasn't Christian, and then some people were pagan. It was pagan. So Paul goes to Corinth, he preaches for about a year and a half, and he's dealing with the idea that now people, because of Paul's preaching, married couples, one of the spouses would come and hear Paul preach, and they would accept Christ. This is a little bit different context than in today's society, in in American culture today, because it was so foreign to everybody. It was the first time people, there, there was no... Well, there's a Methodist church. It wasn't like that. So it was brand new. So in some of these circumstances, the husband or the wife would have been like, Ah, you know what? I don't think it's going to be a big deal. It'll fade and they'll come back to normal. Well, what started happening is didn't fade. Matter of fact, their relationship with Christ became stronger and stronger and stronger. So you had a pagan worshiper in the house and a, and a, and a believer in the house. Now, we don't go around saying, Well, yeah, I'm married to a pagan worshipping husband. We don't say things like that today. But the cultural context of what was happening then was you had these severely different belief systems. And when you were baptized in public, you were basically saying, I'm putting off all that stuff and I'm following Christ now. So it's creating an issue. So Paul says that he's, he, he makes the clarification, this is not straight from God, this is my advice to you. He says in other places, live at peace with people as much as it depends on you. So his advice for for husbands or wives that are are believers, that are married to somebody that's an unbeliever, is if they're willing to stay with you, stay. Mm -hmm. If they're willing to stay with you, stay. And then Peter follows it up by saying, and, and Paul does after verse 13, they say, look, the fact that you're there... And the grace of God is flowing through you. God can use that as a conduit to save your spouse. Amen? So the issue is, it's that it's not, well, Lord, this is hard. Lord, this is not, you know, they don't believe. And I, it's, can God use me? Peter actually says, be quiet. Mm-hmm. Can I just say this? You will never nag your spouse into believing in Jesus. Right. It is not going to happen. You know, Jesus doesn't like you doing that. You know, Jesus wishes you were in church. You know, Jesus. Peter says, just exhibit God's grace. A matter of fact, in Matthew, it says, let his light shine through you before men that they would give him praise. And so if you're here and you're, you're a believer, but your spouse is not, Paul says, as long as they will live with you live with them. Now, here's, here's the catch. Don't make them becoming a Christian, don't make you loving them, be contingent on them becoming a Christian. Don't make it, hey, if you don't serve, if you don't come to Christ, then I can't love you like that. You already made the covenant. Amen? And it's so death to us part. We just didn't know how long that would take. It would be nice if it was like, well, you got 39 years. You're like, I think I can do that. There's a movie about that, I think. What would you say?
1: I said, I think there's a movie about that. There
0: is. So what happens is, oftentimes, as Christians, we say, if they will come to my level, then I can love them better. Listen, the imperative is for us, us to love them selflessly. The Bible says, as Christ loved the church. So if you can pour out the grace that God has given you into your spouse and love them, even though they don't believe, Peter says there's a good opportunity there for them to come to Christ because of the grace that comes through you. So don't, don't, don't make it contingent on them coming to, well, I could love you better if you were more like Jesus. I love you because Jesus loved me. Period. Now, Beth is going to talk about a little caveat to this. Because Paul is not saying get married no matter what. And then pray your spouse into heaven.
1: Right. So if you're single and you haven't, you're haven't, you not in that committed marriage yet, that's something you need to think about. It's kind of that red flag that if you're not on equal grounds. If your if you're, um, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever is not a believer... You need to probably hold back on that relationship. No, not a probably. You need to hold back on that relationship. It's much easier to start off. Not saying it can't happen, but it's it's easier to start that relationship when you're both both believers, both on them.
0: Yeah. So Paul Paul instructs us in that as the church. He says, uh, "Don't be with somebody. Don't get married intentionally with somebody who doesn't believe." Right. So he would have absolutely advised the church in Corinth. Listen. Only marry somebody that believes the same way you do spiritually. What he's saying here is, if you've already married and, and you've come to Christ, then love the person you're married to as long as they'll stay. Amen? Because what was happening in Corinth is, is the pagan spouse is going, well, if you love Jesus, I'm rolling out. Paul said, okay, in that context, there's nothing you can do about it. But if they'll stay, love them. Amen? Amen. So if you find yourself this morning with an unbelieving spouse, love them. Mm -hmm. Just love them. Love them like Jesus does. Don't nag them. Love them like Jesus does. Love them like you committed to. And let me say this. It should actually be easier because now the Holy Spirit is working in you to do that work. Amen? So now we have the power of the Holy Spirit in us to love people. And so it should make the job a little more palatable, to be honest with you, because now the grace that we've experienced, we can pass on to our spouse. Is that good? Amen? Does that encourage you? All right, go to the next
1: one. Do you want to hit the spot about when you probably should leave them?
0: Oh, let me back up. Yeah. Everybody's like, oh, what are they talking about? I, am, we, I want to make sure in today's world that you understand that we are not making any excuses for abuse. That if you're in a relationship and you're being abused in a relationship, that there is there is no biblical mandate for you to stay there and get beat up. Amen? So listen, get help. Get help today. Don't wait. Get help today. And the grace of God can help you walk through that process and be whole again Get help today. There is no, when Paul says, hey, if the unbeliever will stay with you, and I'm I'm acting like all unbelievers beat their wives, and that's not true. But what I'm saying is this, this is not a scripture to be twisted into putting up with an abusive situation. Amen? All
1: right. All right. So how can married couples encourage other couples when they are struggling in their own marriages?
0: Oh, this is good how many of you have a perfect marriage raise your hand go ahead let's see it
1: a couple hands in the house
0: i see a couple smart guys back there (laughs) they're like oh yeah she's perfect yeah okay besides the two liars that we've witnessed today (laughs) how many of you how many of you in your marriage you have difficulties and you have you have struggles and you have success in your marriage raise your hand over the last however many years you've been married, you've had some really, really good times. And then you've had some times where the good thing there are any nods in the house. You know what I'm saying?
1: And sometimes they happen in the same day. <laughs> right?
0: It's a little early for that, but. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So here's what, so the question is, if, some, if, if you're in a difficult spot in your marriage, how do you give advice to someone else? And this is not a quote that we came up with. We read this. The difference is this. Are you giving advice from a scar or an open wound? Let me explain that a little bit. If you have a scar, the thing's already healed up. Mm-hmm. Are you following me? Yeah. If that thing is still oozing from an open wound, you better, you better back off a little bit. Right. Once you're healed, you have a perspective that you can't get while you're still hurting you can't get it. If, if you're bleeding out in the moment and somebody walks up to you and says, hey, it'll get better. You can't even understand that. But if you're healed up, there's a perspective that you get from healing that you can't get while you're currently bleeding. Right. Because when we're bleeding, we're in shock. We're in trauma. We're in, we're, we don't know what to do. When we're healed up, we have the perspective of time. We have the perspective of, of, of maybe understanding how God used it and all those things. So, so this is what we say. If, you're in a, if your relationship is bleeding at the moment, don't give anyone advice. Start letting people pour into you. But if you've got a scar, don't let that scar keep you from telling people how you made it through. Because, no, listen, nobody is looking for a perfect marriage. They're looking for someone who's healed up. Right. Amen? Amen? I never go... <laughs> I thought I was going to have to have uh, neck surgery this past summer, and I believe God did a, did a good thing in Amen. my life. Amen. I never called anybody in the operating room and said, Hey, how's it going? I only talked to people who had already had the same surgery that I had and had healed up from it. I didn't want to talk to anybody who hadn't had it yet. right? Because they were freaking out just like I was. So you wait until the healing takes place and then it gives you the liberty to explain to people, hey, here's, here's what we learned from this. So let me say something else about, about being careful in this, in this area. If you're bleeding in a relationship right now, do not go to the opposite sex and bleed on them. Mm-hmm. Right? Don't do it. Do not, do not trust me when I say this. If you're, if you've got an open wound, do not go to your job with the woman or man that you work beside and start and start telling them all about this this hurtful. Ex- do not do that because here's what happens. The doctor never walks into the operating room going, it's only a little infection, I'll wear a glove. Because what happens with that is if wounded people are talking to wounded, you're just trading infection back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and it doesn't help anybody. And so misery always loves... Company. Find yourself somebody that is the same gender as you to say, hey, listen, I'm walking through a tough time and let them be a doctor for you, not another infected patient.
1: Yeah, one of the things, too, we want to make sure is don't, don't hide your wounds for sure, but you need to be careful who you show those to. You need to have those, that small handful of people that you can trust that you can say, hey, this is what I'm dealing with right now, and just help me to get through that. So,
0: Yeah, so it's the thing we talked about the other week. It's the difference between the people you are pouring into and the people that are pouring into you. Mm-hmm. So if you're, if you're in a relationship now, your marriage is struggling, uh, don't, don't feel a mandate to go out and tell everybody. Start pulling some people in that, that have healed up already right. and let them speak into your life. But if you have healed up, don't let the scar keep you from, from helping people. Mm-hmm. Because listen, the last thing people need is somebody that thinks they got a perfect marriage. Right. That's the last thing. I want to talk to somebody with a scar. I want to talk to somebody that's been through it, healed up, is, is now immune to the infection. I want to talk to somebody like that that I can say, hey, I, I've got this sore, and you've already walked through it. Can you help me now? Mm-hmm. Hey, can I, can I give you a little secret? Old people have more scars than you do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because they're old.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: because they're old. And they've gone through many more things than we have. Because they're old, right. so so here's my advice: if you're dealing in a, if you're having relational difficulty right now, find somebody that is old and married and has a smile on their face. Because likelihood under that smile are a whole pile of scars they've healed right. up from, and they can put their arms around you and say, "Listen, I've walked exactly where you're walking, and here's how you make it out the right. other side." Find some people with some scars on them to get advice from, not people that are bleeding out currently. But what we do is we like, misery likes company, so we surround ourselves with people with the same infection we have, mm-hmm. and we just trade it back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Find somebody who's healed up. Amen?
1: Amen. All right, so what's the best way to protect your marriage from negative influences? And I think one of the things, we did talk about this a little bit, more in the, um, the area of our children if you remember when we had said like if one of us was really angry we had already given each other permission to go ah, okay hang back there a little let me take that for a second um same thing with this i mean trust your spouse that they have your best interest at heart and go ahead before anything starts to happen and say look if you start to see somewhere where i'm, I'm not making good choices or i'm feeding my my ears and my eyes, my mind with too much of something else, you know, step in. I, I'm going to give you permission to say something.
0: Yeah, we've done that. Um, now, this is, we're not talking about manipulation. Right. We're not talking about manipulation. But early on, uh, I'm, I'm probably uh, a workaholic a little bit. And, yep. um, and so early on in our marriage, I'm glad you didn't agree with that forcefully, but early on in our marriage what i i thought i thought well i need to i need to do more i need to do more well i hadn't read the book five love languages i didn't realize her her love language was quality time mine is not <laughs> so what i would do is i i worked a construction job i worked construction during the day and then i would take side jobs at night and i would go remodel somebody's basement it would take a month or whatever, because I'd do it in the evening. So she would beg me, don't do that again. Don't do that again. I just want you to stay home. And, and I would not do it for about a month, and I'd go right back. And so, or there when we were very first married, I was hanging around some guys. We weren't doing nefarious stuff, but we were hunting all the time and four-wheeling and stuff like that. And it, <laughs> first service went, oh. <gasps> so I'm going to preface it by saying I was 20 when I got married. I was I barely could dress myself so I was 22 we had our first kid so I thought it's only one kid she can take care of it that's the first time I'm actually
1: ever hearing that was last service So
0: <laughs> I, I just thought it's not that big a deal so my buddy would call and say hey man you want to go hunting I'd be like yeah I only got one kid sure gone the whole time my wife sitting at home in her love language is quality time And I'm getting home in the evening at night going, baby, you're beautiful. I love you. And she's like, whatever. Words of affirmation. Yeah, because mine's words of affirmation. So I thought I told her I love her. I got friends that don't do that. (laughs) Told her she's beautiful. I don't know what the problem is. What, I got to be here all day? (laughs) So so I didn't have people in my life at that time to say, hey, Chris, man, you better back off a little bit. You better back off a little bit. Fortunately, about six years in, we read this book. Mm So invite people into your life and let your spouse have the opportunity to say, hey, listen, I think you're too tied up in that. Or I think this is, I think you're watching too much TV. I
1: said no man ever.
0: (laughs) Some people just went, what, what? It's a world series. I mean, there's got to be. So negative influences creep into marriages in all different kinds of ways. They creep in through TV. They creep in through, they creep in, through all different kinds of things, through your phone, through relationships, and you have to safeguard your marriage. You are the gatekeepers of your marriage, and you have to safeguard what comes in. And we're gonna segue into, the, into one more. The, the, the last one, uh, when dating, I'll read that one.
1: Yeah.
0: It says, When dating, is it okay to kiss, or should, should it be friends until marriage? That's awesome. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap all this stuff up together. Watch this. In our society today, in, in the life, in, in a Christian life today, it seems to me that we spend more time figuring out the limits than figuring out what God's expectations are. Mm-hmm. We spend more time trying to figure out how far we can push it rather than what's Holy. Come on, I wanted some more amens out of that. Words of affirmation, let's go. (laughs) So we're dating, how far can I go? And God not go, I don't like that. Right. Why don't we start out with the idea that our relationships can be holy? If you're single here, why don't you start out with the idea that your relationship can honor God right from the very beginning? So if if you drop your girlfriend off after a date and you give her a kiss on the cheek, did God go, You shall not. I don't think so. But you have to make up in your mind early that that my goal is to not see how far I can push it. My goal is to honor God. Because, trust me when I say this, the farther you push it, the more complicated everything gets. And the farther you push it with multiple dating partners, the more complicated everything gets. It does not make your married life easier. It doesn't. So the reason I want to bring that up, protecting your marriage against negative influence, is this. In today's world where everything is sexualized, come on church. Let's stop making excuses for what we allow in and start asking God what's holy. The Bible talks about Don't let any sexual immorality be, be in you. And so we, we live in this culture of constantly pushing the limit, pushing the limit, pushing the limit. And all of a sudden, as Christians, we find ourselves engulfed in this world that, that we're constantly asking for forgiveness for rather than, tr- that, rather than living the holy life. I just read this last week. Do you realize that pornography in marriage, if, if a male in marriage looking at pornography, the divorce rate doubles? If a female is engaged in pornography, it triples. It is a plague on our society. Mm -hmm. It's a good thing we're almost done. It's a plague on our society. So so the question, is it okay to do this or is it okay to do that? What's going to honor God in this circumstance? If you give your girlfriend a hug and a kiss at the end of the date and you walk away... I don't think God has a problem with that, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you, well, this is how far you can go, and God's not going to blink. This is how far you can go, and God's going to be okay with it. You need to pray and get on your knees and say, God, my first and foremost goal in this world is to honor you. If you are married here today and you're in your relationship with your spouse sexually, my first and foremost goal is to honor God, not be selfish. You going to come back next week? (laughs) Listen, church, we have to get this right. Our kids are growing up in a saturated environment. It's It's not that God didn't give us a sexual drive. It's that we turned it into a monster. We turned it into this uncontrollable beast, and our society feeds it and feeds it and feeds it. So start asking, God, am I honoring you with my body? God, am I honoring you in this way? And make that the goal, not selfish ambition about what we can attain. Amen? Amen. And so the Bible says that this is, this is a sin that has to do with your body. It's unlike other sins. So make sure you're honoring God with it. And make sure if you're in a dating relationship now, just go ahead and make it easy on yourself. Set the limits. Sit down and have a talk with, your, with, your dating, with whoever you're dating say, you know what, I'm going to honor God. And if they start bucking the system, then you already know. Right. Amen? Then you already know. Ladies, in this room, I'm going to tell you the same thing I tell my... If they won't honor you... If you're dating a man right now that won't honor you, roll him out. Roll him out. It's the same thing I would tell my daughters. He better honor you. If he wants to keep... <laughs> He better honor you. And so let's hold, let's hold God's standard up as the standard and not see how far we can push it before he's upset with us. Amen? Amen? There is a blessing from doing God's will in our lives. There's a blessing by honoring God. And I want you to experience that in your relationships. Amen?
1: Amen?
0: Amen? Amen. All right, why don't you stand to your feet? I told you we were going to end on a big one. Everybody got sweaty palms. They're like, he's doing it. Listen, we want to pray a blessing over you this morning. We believe that one of the keys to the gospel's going forward in this area and anywhere is that the church has strong marriages that know what grace looks like and know how to extend and love sacrificially and know how to teach the children coming up behind us how to have great relationships, amen? And so in a world where it seems it's the, it's the exception to the rule, the church can rise up and show everybody how to do it. Wouldn't that be great? So, Father, we ask this morning, God, that the things we've learned this month, God, I don't know that any of these are easy to implement, but we ask you to give us the grace and the strength by your Holy Spirit to do just that. Help us to hold the standard high. Help us, Lord, to to live lives that honor you. Help us, God, to raise children that honor you. And we pray, Lord, that we wouldn't just live a good life blessed by you, but we'd live a legacy that would impact this world. We pray that because we made these decisions, God, that your gospel would go forward, that you'd be made famous because we followed your word. Thank you for this opportunity we have. And it's in your mighty name we pray and everyone said, amen and amen. Come on, could you give him praise one more time before you leave? Amen. All right, we'll see you back here next week. Don't miss.